0: We're talking about these nth order effects. How much of the political chaos on social media do you think is due to actual legitimate disagreements between these factions? And how much of it is magnified by those really detrimental physics?
1: I mean, the whole thing emerged from the physics, right? I mean, it's just as simple as whatever has the most engagement is prioritized, which means, Whatever is going to cause the most debate, the most argument, the most whatever is going to be prioritized, right? You know, social media, Twitter, whatever ultimately functions as a real-time focus group of millions of people. I mean, this is why 4chan was so powerful in the early days of the internet, is that it actually functioned as a a meme-making focus group. You had 100,000 people on 4chan at any given moment in like 2008 before Twitter, before Instagram. And if your post didn't get a response, it would immediately basically go to page two, three, four, five off, be gone forever. I don't think people realize that like literally every meme came from 4chan from like 2006 or seven to like 2012 or something. That's
0: literally true, yes. It all started on 4chan. I'm here today with my good friend Julian, aka Lil Internet, as he is widely known online. He is the co-founder and co-host of the New Models podcast. You can find them on Patreon, Substack, or Channel. Lil Internet is a multidisciplinary artist whose work spans a wide variety of media. You are as likely to find him lecturing in museums like Academy der Kunst in Berlin or the recent 2023 Global Art Forum in Dubai as you are to find him directing music videos for artists like Diplo, Beyonce, and Iggy Azalea. His writing has appeared in Artforum, O32C, Kaleidoscope, High Snobiety, Zur Kunst, and many others. Most recently, you directed a music video for Boys Noise and Pussy Riot. So you are now an AI prompt engineer as well? Yeah, get, what was that, the, that was
1: kind of an accident, but yeah.
0: <laughs> what was the process like for making that video?
1: So I had been playing with mid-journey and prompts, obviously, and I kind of got on this wave of film stills from 80s exploitation films that don't exist. I sort of found a string that does that really, really well, Boys Noise, who's I've worked with for many years is really the catalyst for me moving to Berlin was working with him on his 2015 album and him just saying, "You know, you can move to Berlin." And I was like, "Wait, I can just move to Berlin?" <laughs> yes, and so I just moved to Berlin. But anyways, <laughs> yeah, I was kind of playing around with some stuff and I showed it to him. This is a week before the single came out and he was like, "Oh yeah, let's make a music video." So, I was like, "Okay," and I reached out to Jack Ricker, who's in, I think, both of our discords, and his partner, Kate Howell, who are very good editors, very good at After Effects. They are very good, yeah. I did not have time to do a whole music video, but I had the idea and I had 300 film stills from exploitation films that don't exist. And so, yeah, I mean, Jack and Kate did a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of turning it into a video But it all came together really, really fast. Generally, I don't do music videos anymore because they don't pay well. And it's kind of something for people who aren't trying to build a stable future and are just trying to like, I don't know, get laid and meet celebs and (laughs) get their name out, you know, so I don't normally do them anymore. But it was a really cool experiment. And it actually turned out really well I think people really liked. it turned it, so. out
0: fucking great no it turned out really good and I saw it in my feed I actually I first saw it I didn't know that it was you who had made it I think oh. it just popped up in my feed for maybe Alice Glass had shared it right uh, she's uh, on somebody. the song too yeah and it's just it's so visually arresting it really feels like you're watching a video because the cuts are so fast and there's so much animation and immediately I thought, oh yeah, okay, this is what AI is meant for. It's meant to do this like rapid prototyping of really novel ideas that like look really fucking good. And you can kind of tell that it's an independent producer. And then I found out, oh shit, Julian did this. And that (laughs) that was really cool. And then uh, Jack and Kate, uh, big shout out to them. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, maybe music is a good place to start for all this because I was thinking in advance of this episode. I've since talked to Carly, I've talked to Matt, I'm now talking to you. Eventually, I'll talk to Holly. And in the scope of these conversations, I think our generation saw this period where social media moved from being like a hobby to being like the core of your creative practice and then literally your business, right? Our generation saw this period of transformation where we grew up with dial-up modems where you had to plug it into the phone jack and then now we all run creative businesses and do commentary and podcasts and so on and so forth. So, The insights that I get from these interviews are really applicable to a lot of the younger people who listen to the podcast and are trying to figure out what the internet is doing to creative life. I was in Boston in 2012 for a jogging exhibition at MassArt called The Art of Politics. I knew of you as a musician, but also as just a general like insightful internet commentary person. We first met up then, and since, you know, your career has expanded to include all of these other diverse fields, but maybe we could just start out with, like, how did you first get into a creative career, and what role did the internet play in that?
1: I was making music, DJing, and making videos with my friends since I was a teenager, like, I don't know, 14, maybe. Hmm. I mean, my dad is a photographer, so he actually had, like, a scanner really early you had a mini DV camera. So I was always playing with that stuff. I mean, we I used to make anti-drug PSAs for high school that were like really over the top, like so, oh, hyper, no way. But like so hyperbolic <laughs> that they were obviously like not really anti-drug PSAs, but oh, they, would I play, see. Okay. they would play them on the, you know, every classroom in homeroom had a TV monitor. They had like a closed circuit TV program they would play. There was something that was, syndicated i think in public high schools across the country It was called Channel 1 or something and there was actually like a daily news show for high school kids that was like wow. 10 minutes long that they would play in the homeroom and then there was the morning announcements and no one wanted to do the morning announcements so but the, you know they had a little TV studio in the library so i ended up doing the morning announcements and it kind of became this venue for pranks and videos and little things <laughs> I, that i could make
0: so you're a 14 year old shit poster to your high school
1: yeah basically nice. on the close circuit social media of the high school <laughs> but i mean i also was really into music and mowed lawns and babysat to buy 1200s and you know and then i downloaded when fruity loops came out I mean, I was making music before Fruity Loops. It's like a super convoluted way of doing it with like cool edit and hmm. I don't know some other things. But because my dad also had a scanner, I could make fake IDs. So then I got a fake ID. And so I was able to like go to clubs and raves and stuff when I was really young. Like the deal with my parents was like if I got good grades, they would let me like go to clubs and do whatever. So Yeah. So I was kind of just already, I don't know, hanging out with like much older people and going to clubs and making music and little videos and stuff since I was young. And I went to Emerson College in Boston for film and audio production. I mean, I'd always also like worked jobs. So I kind of did a summer internship and then got hired at an ad agency in Boston. And then I was in Boston for like eight years or something, like way too long. Uh, I wish I had more risk tolerance back then for just like moving to a better city and doing something. But uh, I'm happy where my life is now, I guess. But I guess Mm -hmm. I met you. I didn't realize you were, did you all stay in my warehouse space?
0: Well, we were there for the one, for the one night. And then I left at like, 6am to go to the bus back to new york oh wow yeah so i think we only i mean i say slept but i think we got there at like 3am and then i slept for three hours and then i walked to the bus yeah
1: (laughs) yeah i mean i was also i was so mad at like the cost of real estate and and rents in boston i mean because it's a college town and so all the rents are really ridiculous i don't think i ever had a lease the entire time i was there wow because i was just like so mad so most of the time I was there I ended up living someone like passed on to me this giant I don't know 1200 square foot warehouse space it didn't have a shower it didn't have a kitchen but it was huge with super high ceilings in Southie uh, and it was like 400 bucks a month and so I just like lived yeah. I just lived there for most of the time but I had to you know take shower at the gym or at a friend's house but I loved having the space yeah, when they finally lost that place, actually, it was like this really old landlord and, you know, he finally retired. And the new guy who came in, the rent raised from 400 to $1,300 in one month wow. after the new guy came in. So yeah. that's when I got rid of it. But anyways, it was really fun to have that place in a very otherwise boring city
0: the core of any kind of creative, durable, sustainable creative practice is that you have to take on an extraordinary amount of risk. So, you need to keep your overhead low and prepare for the bad years because if you're not prepared and you hit two bad years in a row, then you have to move back in with your folks or something like that. You know, I've literally done that before uh, when I had two bad years in a row. But then when you have the good years, it's like, okay, this is going to go and continue on forever, but that's, that's never the case, you know. We talked about, uh, I guess, desktop publishing at the very beginning. Like this is all pre-social media, right? You were, I think, similar to me around that age, empowered by these tools of, like, I was using Microsoft Picture It because I didn't have Photoshop in my family computer, but I was around the same age, like fourteen, and I was putting together collages and whatever. So that that portion of it is really clear that like young people have access to these tools, and then that opens up all new different types of avenues that they wouldn't have had before. But then there's this period of social media, which is really new and really unique to our generation. In those early years, I think of us as like early adopters basically of web two, right? We don't necessarily right. think of web two like that because we think of this race for scale and controversy baiting and like sexy selfies and whatever kicks up in the newsfeed. But there is also just this legacy adopter benefit where if you were there early, like 10 years, you've accumulated a lot of followers. So if you need to make the leap between different mediums or different business models or what have you, like having a bunch of accumulated followers is a definitely a net benefit. How did you first get started on social media for building a creative career?
1: I mean, I remember I was on Friendster. I was on Makeout Club too, which is a weird, it was founded by a- Makeout Club. I think it's really the first social media proper as we think of it today, maybe. It was made by this guy named, yeah, Gibby Miller. It was so, Boston is like a really big, like hardcore, like hardcore punk city. And this guy from Boston, Gibby Miller- Created the site called makeoutclub.com. It was basically like this primitive social media site for hardcore and like scene kids to find each other huh. online. And you could post like one photo of yourself, I think, and then fill out some information in your like AIM screen name and stuff like that. But depending when you signed up, that's what page you were on. Whoa. You could like search for people like near you, I think, and stuff. But like, yeah, if you were like one of the first members, you you know, you were on like page one, you know, there's like, a, you know, th- a couple thousand pages by that's uh, huge. Okay. the end of it. But then, I mean, I remember Friendster being there too, but that was more just also like, I don't think I ever really met anybody on
0: Friendster. <laughs> you could be like, I'm dating this guy. Yeah, he's on page four. Yeah, no, that <laughs> like was, it was a you flex. were clouded
1: if you. Yeah, abs a hundred percent. Wow, you were on the early pages. Yeah, I think it was really my space when, like, I actually started using social media within the creative things I was doing. Like, I remember my friend and and I in seventh grade we made a video presentation on the Tiananmen Square massacre. What he had some for like a school project. He had some <laughs> He had some weird like primitive like frame by frame animation program. And like we would make videos by literally putting stuff together and filming screens with a camera, right? Because you couldn't bounce stuff out. It's like whatever tool, it doesn't. It's like I, w- I was using this example the other day. I don't know, in, in Turkey, you'll, take a cab, and the cab driver will be playing music off of WhatsApp, Hmm. right? Like, not Spotify, WhatsApp. He'll be a member of some group that's just, like, every message is MP3s of songs, and that's how he plays music, right? No matter what the, quote-unquote, primitive the tools are, like, you're going to find a way to max it out, I guess, if you have kind of a hacker mindset. So, I mean, MySpace was kind of this golden era of social media experimentation, because, you could to use HTML tags. I mean, we were also I had a did a club night in Boston for like I think it ran for like ten years. Actually, it was called Heartthrob, and we were making video flyers for it that we'd post on MySpace and stuff. Yeah, I don't know from two thousand eight or something two thousand seven. Wow. And so MySpace music, of course, was like. That was really big. It made a lot of connections with people just through the music player on MySpace and connecting with other artists and finding people, stuff like that. I mean, MySpace, I still think was the best social media site that ever
0: existed i i do think about the top eight quite a bit you know i think that's really i've been doing the series of flags which has like eight different ideologies jammed together and eight is kind of the perfect number that it's like not too big of a group or not too small of a group like eight is a squad you know right and, and I think they spent a lot of time just considering having your top eight friends and just what exactly that meant. It was the right amount of people to properly describe you and all of your different influences. And that level of curation is really what disappeared in this leap from like the MySpace era to like this really web to everything organized in a newsfeed. Things like Facebook, YouTube, all of these types of things where there's a lifetime of content that's uploaded every single hour of every single day. At the period of MySpace, there wasn't much to consider in the way of the physics of social media, right? Like right. the physics of social media, I remember LiveJournal, I remember MySpace, and it really felt like I was posting to my 150 Dunbar's number group of friends, you know, I could I could know who was reading it, and I knew what would happen.
1: But the feed was an algorithm. No, it
0: wasn't at all. Well, because there wasn't enough information to really need to sort it. Like you could just scroll and see all the stuff you had to see for that day, you know? then things just start to change. as like these platforms get bigger and bigger, and then you need to algorithmically sort it because it's just an overwhelming iceberg of content every single time. We've talked about this term, the physics of social media. That's something I picked up from you in the recent piece you wrote for Outland titled Holographic Media. Should we maybe define for our listeners who have not yet come across that essay, what are the physics of social media?
1: Physics is a term I've been using for a while now just to describe like, the structure of social media and how it affects the behavior within it, having a 240-character limit on Twitter, that's the physics of Twitter, right? It's like gravity. You can't get around it. I mean, now you can if you like pay for the blue check or something, right? But generally, the way the algorithm prioritizes or deprioritizes content, that's the physics. The retweet is the physics. They're basically inescapable. You can find little hacks around them. but. They shape everything within it. When the earth had like less of a gravitational pull, it was like you had dinosaurs and megafauna, right? Like it Hmm, was easier hmm. for things to grow really, really tall just because like the physics were tweaked by like a really small amount. Sure, It's the same with social media, like tweak the physics of something and actually it's like a butterfly effect or something. Like it has these really huge, really complex repercussions. And so- Yeah, I just kind of use the term physics because it also works the same way on social media. You switch from a chronological feed to an algorithmic feed and suddenly like all kinds of wild things emerge from that change. Yeah.
0: In the previous episode with Carly, we talked about linear media being described roughly as There's a monthly publication, consider this to be freeze or art forum or things like this. And there's roughly, if you're running a gallery, you're doing like 10 shows a year. Usually they don't do a show in the summer, they do one group show. So 10 to 11 shows a year and uh, that roughly correlates with every month. So there's this pace that everybody syncs on. It's like clockwork, right? It's like This is the piece of all the things that are competing for that cover in December or that big feature in January or February. Everybody is synchronized on this pace. That is the consistent schedule of linear media that's like a ticking clock. And now we're in this holographic media environment. I'm referencing your article that you recently wrote and also the talk that both of you gave at Bundeskunsthalle in Bonn. We're in a very different environment where there's paces and influences and different outlets that are all competing all at once and it doesn't necessarily make sense to map it in this you know a to b linear progression instead it's like everything is coming from every side and it's like totally totally chaotic one of the things that i've tried to move away from intentionally in the last few years is that i find some of these physics of social media to be really toxic for one uh very clearly politics, (laughs) politics, <laughs> political economy, politics in general, any kind of discourse. Two, it is really bad for culture in that I think that the art that people were making of our generation in like let's say just to make it a very clear distinction like 2012 versus 2022, I think that within that 10-year period people were able to take a lot more weird creative risks and get proportionate rewards for the risks that they took. The the other thing that is I think really important and sometimes not talked about enough is just the mental health cost of being on these platforms and scrolling, doom scrolling all day is just like really bad for you. Social media has gotten a lot worse in that period. So, understanding all of that, I've tried to like shift out, I now really like participating in relatively closed discord communities. I find that when there is a sorting mechanism that is in some way curated, I generally get better feedback you know, if you were to analogize posting to like a crit class, <laughs> if I post something on Instagram, I might get a few emojis and like a nice post, bro, that's a uh, keep going. But if I post it in the discord, people type like paragraphs and full essays about like, it's just I mean, it's a really meaningful in depth relationship with these things that just cannot happen in the physics of the web two big social media environment. So that has been that has been really rewarding. So much of your work in cultivating new models has been building communities and structures in opposition to those toxic physics of the Web2 environment. How have you taken this type of idea and then instantiated it in building out new models and other aspects of that community?
1: I mean, the way new models came about was pretty organic, I have to say. First, we were sensing that everything was feeling really noisy. Post the shift from chronological feed to algorithmic feed is feeling really hard to find things in a way. I mean, it's like, have you noticed that Google Image Search now is terrible? Yeah, yeah, it is. It's almost all stock photos. I don't know what changed. It something in the physics must have been tweaked because it shows you the
0: whole thing changed. Portraits of artists. Yeah, it shows you portraits of artists rather than their work now. Like if you look up a painter, you're going to find their headshot rather than their work.
1: Right. And so we were sensing this, things were feeling really noisy. We started as an aggregator. I mean, of course, you know, our site is based off of the design of Drudge Report because Drudge Report's design hadn't changed since, it still hasn't changed essentially since 1998. And it's the biggest news site in America, at least. And so we were like, okay, there's something core here that works and we want to harness that for a different political view. Then, of course, since I had of a background in music, you know, I, we could make a podcast. And then Cody Brown, who was one of our listeners, suggested that we make a Discord. Uh, and we had never used Discord because, I mean, still, it was more for gamers then. But I think what ended up happening after that, of course, you could just imagine like, oh, there'll be people in the Discord and they'll all be like smart and cool and we'll be able to have cool conversations you, you hope for that, but it actually, I don't think we expected that the community would be as generative and as good as it is now. It kind of shows that like when you have a different structure, different physics available, what's possible, right? Because all of a sudden, because of Discord, people came together and are actually able to do things and make things. And, you know, we've met a lot of people on our Discord. And I mean, this is something that, you know, used to happen, you know, I think on MySpace you'd meet people from MySpace. I mean, of course, like PHP message boards, bulletin boards, you would sometimes meet people. I mean, the famous Diplo message board, holler, the holler board was like the center of most of the interesting stuff going on in DJ culture and the aughts. Hmm. I mean, this was before hmm. Diplo was like a celebrity. There's like many years where diplo wasn't a celebrity and yeah he had a message board and that became the center of like what kind of became what people call bloghouse now but really about you know trading mp3s and music and breaking out of really the subcultural like the irl subcultural silos that actually existed and ultimately though everyone had been so sucked into this Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, that I think people had kind of forgotten what was possible collectively, socially, online, and Discord ended up having the right physics for
0: it. Yeah, we forgot about it for too long a time. Yeah, we forgot. I spent this morning putting together the Do Not Research book. We're halfway through the new book for 2022 to 2023. The year before that, the book from 2021 to 22 is something like 412 pages. That would not have fucking happened on Instagram. Like, there is no no way you could organize that many people to produce that volume of work that everyone collectively agrees on within the physics of Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or anything else like that.
1: Interestingly enough, it doesn't even happen on Reddit. Yeah. I mean, I'm actually curious what it is. I've always wondered what it is about reddit that actually stops it i mean maybe it's just the scale of it the accessibility i guess reddit did like does
0: move the stock market and Fuck up institutional hedge funds and stuff. Yeah, I mean I think it's I think it's the privacy of the space. Yeah. It's the privacy and honestly it's the paywall. Cause the paywall is just a hundred percent friction. And it's you know, it's not cost prohibitive that like having that level of friction just means that everyone who's there is really dedicated to this set of core ideas, versus on Reddit, you're in like the giant attention dynamics of like manipulating stock prices and and stuff like that, which is it's just a whole different terrain and physics, as you say. Yeah. I'm curious if. About because you have so much more experience in the world of music than I do. And I feel like I have a strong sense of what social media did to the art world and other aspects of creative life. But when I talk to Matt Dryhurst and I talk to you, I get a very clear, very precise perspective on what Web2 attention dynamics did to music with the massive devaluing and the streaming economy and so on. In that period of roughly 2012 to 2022, What did you see happen to those subcultural communities that then got put into the blender of YouTube and Spotify and just totally reorganized?
1: I mean, SoundCloud is another platform, I guess, that also has just like great physics. I mean, what's been going on on SoundCloud is like still cool and influential and remains so and it always was. I think there was a time where music wasn't so exciting. And it's gotten exciting again. I'm not sure if that's because of TikTok. Probably. Hmm. has something to do with it. But yeah, I mean, I don't know, streaming, whatever. For me, it was like I was a producer. You know, I did two songs for Azealia Banks. I went on tour with her for a, a while. I, I never depended on selling music for my income. I always like DJed or whatever. I mean, I always had jobs anyways. I was never a full-time musician. But I mean, I, I do remember... What we consider EDM today, that felt very much the meeting of the web two logic with electronic music and what hmm. was happening. Because there were raves in America in the nineties, and then electronic music kind of disappeared for a while. And then it kind of came back with like, you know, justice and stuff people call bloghouse, right? Diplo, the scene he was in early on. Uh and then from that scene, it's like edm happened and all these giant festival industrial complex took off people started getting top line writer like pop top line writers you have a guy who sounds like he's from maroon five like over an electro house track or something it just all of a sudden started following that kind of like mid logic like Hmm. mass logic of how can we actually just scale this out as broad as possible it was also a time where you would just see this mid dynamic happen, right? Like dubstep is a great example of that. Get started as some weird niche genre in the UK. And then, you know, Skrillex came and Skrillex is to his credit, really great. But like the, the really hard, like wobbly sound, it was like perfect for like bros, you know, cause you could kind of <laughs> like head, you could like mosh to it or headbang to it. It sounded aggressive, you know, it didn't have the, queer origin of like house music or techno you know that you saw this sound and i remember because i was going to winter music conference at the time which is like the big week in miami for you know electronic music industry i think it was maybe 2009 maybe 2010 you know winter music conference one year and it's like justice playing and a lot of French guys, a lot of like quote unquote mashups and house and techno and electro. And then the next year, suddenly it was like all dubstep. Like it's all you heard. And I remember just thinking like, whoa, this was like, that was really fast. This change was like really fast. They've never seen a change in music that quick where all of a sudden everyone gravitated to this new thing and then kind of just kept going exponential from there. And the type of people... The music attracted to were just like not interesting or <laughs> cool, really, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh I think yeah, it was just like it was just that kind of that scaling effect though, and that a hundred ocracy, like dominance of the mid effect that happened.
0: We were talking about the hundredocracy, which is a term that I picked up, I think, from you and Shimon Bassar. What is this rule of the mid, the hundredocracy?
1: Well, it comes from Schumann Basar and H U O and Douglas Copeland's book They did two books. The first was The Age of Earthquakes, and the second was The Extreme Self, I believe. Right. Hundredocracy, I think, comes from The Extreme Self, and they made that term to describe the fact that the absolute average ends up dominating, especially in markets of scale, which is in the internet age, kind of everything, especially media, became that, where it's all about the maximum number of people. And to get the maximum number of people, of course, you have to appeal to the type of person loosely that there is the most of. I mean, you could think of it as the middle point, but technically I think it's the mode. I was like thinking back to eighth grade or whatever, like mean, median and mode. Right. And I was like, oh yeah, the mode is the one that occurs the most times. And I think that's always kind of what they're targeting. And I mean, it's also, we we just kind of were in a uh, meme coin season recently. And looking at that is it's just so stark how, I mean, crypto is also something that made me really realize the power of the mid and all of their bell curve memes, I think, illustrated also really well. If a project is too good, it will fail. Like if it's too hmm. smart, too clever, it will fail. Like it has to be kind of dumb. Like it has to just be like, <laughs> ex- like literally mid to win because it's all about scale, you know? And yesterday, I just read some statistic that 54% of Americans read at a sixth grade level or below. And so that really, that puts it into perspective, you know, into some context. I mean, the most popular podcast, I think, or at least it was, was like True Crime Obsessed. And if you ever listen to it, it's like all your faith in humanity just gets drained. (laughs) It has this like really rapid schizophrenic alternation between like, talking about like grisly murders and like triple snapping with like commentary.
0: That's part of the darkest thing that I think the internet has revealed of just like human preferences and tastes. Okay, so I would say that like, We have tastes that are a little bit outside of the mainstream, right? We are like cultural elitists in a sense, right? I think that culture is often impoverished by these giant dynamics of Web2 platforms. Like I don't think prank videos, porn, and cute cats is like the state of cultural production that I want to see in the 21st century, but that is what our system is built to produce. But like the idea that what Web2 has done is really effectively map where attention is and where currency is, it just reveals very dark things about humanity. So, I'm I'm trying to yeah. toe this line now where I say like cultural elitist, economic populist and bind those two things together, de-risking the amount of financial stress and the cost of rent and uh, healthcare and all of these things. Like If that stress was alleviated for most of creative life, then you could afford to take all of these different risks and not have to incentivize for attaching a sexy selfie to whatever kind of rigorous essay you're gonna write. It necessarily shapes cultural production. You have to fit it into these attention economy metrics that are just really depressingly mid.
1: As time has gone on, I've, I've tried to actually cultivate a bit more of what I consider a healthy paranoia. I mean, this is like one example I just realized recently Was that all of the kind of creative commons, copy left kind of stuff on the internet, which you would sort of maybe associate with leftist or progressive politics or something. What that ended up doing is giving permission for giant data sets to be scraped to program all of the AI models that are released now. And I think it's kind of a similar thing, you know, with narratives of not gatekeeping or democratizing something. I mean, right, it sounds good, like, in terms of one order of effects, but once you get to, like, the, you know, second, third, nth order, it just ends up benefiting something you really, you very likely don't agree with. I guess it's like the kill all normies argument, too, which is the way of the early, quote unquote, woke politics or something, you know. First order effect, of course, is like more conscientious and better treatment of, of marginalized people and more concern, more awareness, more thought and and goodwill and uh, maybe actually some policy that benefits them. But the, the way the, that politics and the language kind of emerged online, right, the second and third order effect is like this equal but opposite reaction, like way more violent and deranged opposite reaction of, like, more and more radical fringes of the right. I think it's really important to always consider the effects outside of the first order.
0: Well, so, I have, I have a question on this topic because one of the things that we have spoken about and has been really essential to the Politogram work is this idea called the long tail. Right. And this comes from Chris Anderson, for people who have not heard about this before. This comes from Chris Anderson in 2006 in Wired Magazine. There's a whole book devoted to it, but that's the first explanation of this term. And he realizes that using this analogy for music, the market demand for the misses now outnumbers the hits. So, to just put that in, you know, very easily graspable terms, that means that each individual consumer on the internet is going to find their unique taste preferences. If you combine all of those different consumers and all of their different niche genres, that market demand is going to outnumber the big top 100 music. Is that still true? Well, so that now we're at an inflection point for it, right? right? Because what you would expect from that theory is that Netflix is going to be producing weird Politogram type documentaries of like libertarian neo monarchism and super hyphened nicheified stuff. Instead of those hyper specific genres, we see things like Friends, Seinfeld, you know, the classics that are just being replayed all the time, the West Wing, stuff like that. Now we have this kind of counter theory to it, the hundredocracy. Right. So I'm trying to square these two different things, right? There's like, market incentives for Marvel movies and mids posting and whatever, but then there are also this like immensely nicheified genre, totally atomized individual user taste preference type of work. And I wonder if like, perhaps both of those things are actually true at the same time and we're just missing the middle. Conceivably, we have Marvel movies and we have hyper-specified niche genres of miladies, but we don't have like mid-tier venues that give a platform to like risky creative music that you wouldn't be able to see at like uh, the Hammerstein Ballroom, but you would be able to see at like a scrappy venue in Bushwick or something like that. Right? Maybe what we're watching is that both of these theories are actually true and we're in a moment of extreme, extreme polarization where it's only Marvel movies and it's only super niche stuff that is subsidized by volunteer time from fan bases or something.
1: Well, I mean, I would actually, before you started recording, you were talking about a, I don't know, a really intensive high level political debate that was televised on TV in 1960 something for an hour. What was that? In
0: 1967, William F. Buckley and Michael Harrington had a televised debate for about an hour, maybe an hour and a half. People were just given that uninterrupted debate between two experts in their fields, you know, intellectual leaders on the right and left, and then comparing that to like, now we have 15 second PSAs on TikTok, which is a very impoverished version right. of the discourse.
1: I think back then when there was an infinite choice of media, right? And there were TV channels and record labels, and they were inherently not democratic. Those people consider themselves like stewards of the public in some way or, or stewards of media they like had like yes some sort of values that they needed to uphold and they thought you know this may not appeal to the mid this debate but it's important and we're gonna put it on there right totally As we've mentioned for years and now we keep hearing it more and more and more and more was like the story of like the velvet underground right when it's like oh only so and so many people bought that record, but they all went and started a band, right? It's like record labels could take risks. They could be like, okay, this isn't going to be popular, but it's important and we can do this, right? We're going to go for this. I think everything is so dominated by the market right now that the market ultimately makes... A human is not even making the decision, right? The market has an agent who actually acts on its own logic and its demands, right? Look at HBO Max, right? I mean, I would say they're somewhere in between, the mid and like little bit headier, more niche content. You know, what's really interesting is HBO Max has never used data. They've never... They still That's why
0: the content is so good. It's curated.
1: They still do not look at like viewer data. Like Netflix runs like wild maps of psychographics and like looks at what people like and looks at like they the take people, the data
0: and make the show like just right. as an abstract package. They sell like a package of data. It's fucking wild.
1: They're like, "Oh, the like the the same people like Animal Planet as some dating show. Oh, let's make a show where it's people <laughs> dressed as animals dating." Like literally that's what they do. And that's a real show too.
0: Wait, that's right? a real.
1: Yeah, they have people. In Are like you dress- fucking? <laughs> I no, you were making this up. <laughs> no, no, no. It's 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 real. It's a I furry what dating show called. on Netflix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they do like really like 80s style like prosthetic special effects makeup where they look like uh, oh my god, anamorphs or something like that. Sexy beasts is the name of the show. I guess it came out in twenty twenty one. Uh, utterly ridiculous but that's like how they operate right and hbo has never done that it's always kind of been like this old school kind of like people with a gift like deciding like yeah, no yeah. this is what we need to do this is gonna be it and i i think it's really interesting that they have been very successful still relying on this human instinct and sensibilities of course they always have some tricks left over from the cable days where they're like okay we need to make sure oh the script is great but we need some like sex scenes in it or like we need more like titties in the show like they do that like to like as a hook but otherwise yeah it's still just like very human instinct curation, right?
0: Well, you know, I'm willing to accept those things. This is how I, okay, we're negotiating what is like the best process for producing culture. And I'm willing to accept some of those things because in the absence of not having them, it means total unfiltered, unmitigated optimization for only those things, because that's what floats to the top of the newsfeed once you remove the editor. You know, it may not be like the the best art uh, possible, but like we know that it is possible, and we're not talking about utopian designs. It is just an actually existing alternative. So I'm I'm totally happy to accept a few of those things in lieu of like the platforms being the alternative.
1: I mean, we could why not like take the format of like bimbo's like sissy hypnosis videos and just make it like media theory hypnosis or something.
0: I think that channel would actually do very well.
1: Gooning <laughs> on media theory. <laughs>
0: we're sketching different designs for cultural production and we're talking about different incentives different physics of social media in the early years of being in like art and tech reading groups in new york and watching you know what tumblr did to culture for example i was then able to leverage that set of knowledge against these weird emergent behaviors that we would broadly describe as Politogram type spaces of the collision of hashtags, genres, belief systems, and so on. And I thought, hey, I recognize this. They're doing the same thing that young people used to do, that Netflix is doing. I wonder we're talking about these nth order effects. How much of the political chaos on social media do you think is due to actual legitimate disagreements between these factions? And how much of it is magnified? by those really detrimental physics.
1: I mean, the whole thing emerged from the physics, right? I mean, it's just as simple as whatever has the most engagement is prioritized, which means whatever is going to cause the most debate, the most argument, the most whatever is going to be prioritized, right? You know, social media, Twitter, whatever, ultimately functions as a real-time focus group of millions of people. I mean, this is why 4chan was so powerful in the early days of the internet is that it actually functioned as a a meme making focus group. You had a hundred thousand people on 4chan at any given moment in like 2008, before Twitter, before Instagram. And if your post didn't get a response, it would immediately basically go to page two, three, four, five off, be gone forever. I don't think people realize that like literally every meme came from 4chan from like 2006 or seven to like 2012 or something. That's
0: literally true, yes. It all started
1: on 4chan, right? Twitter also kind of works in this way. So it's very good at optimizing, okay, what political take is actually going to get the most engagement. And I think uh, eventually people just start being drawn in around these particular positions and then they just become real positions, you know? At the same time, I mean, the politics... How real it actually is for people. I mean, I think of it as like VR or something. I mean, I was talking with Carly earlier. It's like, okay, maybe like language was the first media, but like religion was also like a super early media, right? It's almost like a augmented reality layer. Ideologies kind of work the same way. Like you look at like ISIS, right? The radical Islamist terror group. If you're a ISIS soldier, you are actually, you're not, in the same world you or I are in. You are a soldier in a war that's been going on for 1400 years against Rome. That's like still happening, Right. right? right? If you become a martyr, there's a paradise for you. All of this. I mean, if you think about that, if you actually believe it, like you are in like your own VR, the ISIS VR game. You're playing it in real life, you know? It's an
0: augmented reality. Yeah. yeah,
1: And I think that's kind of how the culture war stuff that's emerged from the internet, it is this AR experience. I mean, I find it really funny, all this anticipation about AR glasses. Like, you don't need glasses for AR. Like, we're all literally living in AR right now.
0: We already got it.
1: (laughs) Yeah. You don't need the fucking glasses.
0: I mean, I think that's a good link back because... If 60 years ago, we could have a debate for an hour and a half between two representatives of differing political worldviews, and today we get like a Twitter thread between Scott Adams and... Big red or some like internet nonsense. That is just it's not that's not really sustainable for conducting society. So
1: I mean there's still it's it's just that stuff is just in the realm of like philanthropy or sort of decaying institutions, right?
0: That have their own fucking problems that are like so entrenched by this point.
1: I mean you have like intelligence squared or something, like bigger debate platforms from like the UK. I mean, of course Europe, where there's still state money for these things, they will put on these kinds of events and the audience i mean the cost per attendee you know they're probably paying like a thousand dollars per person who actually cares or watches right. It, right
0: exactly the dollar spend per view numbers is like it's got to be astronomical
1: yeah it absolutely yeah, I'm,
0: is i'm really bullish on breaking points in the u.s breaking points and counterpoints are two if people watch the stream they've probably seen some clips that i'll share every monday but They've gotten essentially the format is there's a commentator from the left and commentator from the right. And then they are in like a soft debate format, very anti-establishment politics. Imagine like new right and dirtbag left roughly. And then they try to reach a synthesis of like economic populist views on what would reconstitute democracy in the U.S., and they've been doing really well and they're you know highly ranked on apple podcasts they're like number 1 or 2 oh that's cool something on the scale of like ben shapiro you know but how many years was ben shapiro like the number one podcast before people actually found out about him these things are kind of like sleeper hits until they're not Anyway, I think of that format as being kind of something similar to what New Models was looking to do in the very beginning when you started your project of like, here's this aggregator page, sort through all the stories, try to make sense of all these differing perspectives from like the left, right, up, down, and sideways, and just get slowly, painfully to the truth by unpacking all this information. Yeah, that seems to be the necessary process to like build in opposition to these terrible physics of web 2 and try and find some point of truth that people can agree on to move forward with society. I guess the last thing I want to ask you is what is next for new models? I'm speaking to you now from one of the last days you'll be in your apartment, you're moving in yes. the next few days, uh, a lot of new moving stuff is and coming We have up. A,
1: a baby coming in a month, so it's...
0: Unbelievable. Yeah.
1: Uh, so we're going to probably enter a, a bit of an experimental phase. I, I mean, if you do the kind of thing we do, you can't take a break.
0: You can never take a break.
1: <laughs> no. no. So I think, you know, it's obviously this like crazy life disruption, but generally feel like kind of thing that can actually be surprised about what comes out being in different circumstances when the physics of my life change, so, so to speak. <laughs> so I think we're probably play around with different content formats, I think, this summer. Um, and we're also, though, hoping that we're hoping this is very early and tentative that we'll be able to do another live event this summer. Kevin Munger, who's the kind of guy who makes you like believe in academia again, but he's a political scientist. Amazing guy, and uh, he's going to do a Flusser reading group on New Models.
0: Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, over the next <laughs> nice, couple nice. months.
1: And then a group also from New Models Collapseology is uh, finishing a zine and a card game. Yeah, we're hoping we can get something devirtualized, some kind of IRL event in Berlin towards the
0: end of the summer. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I just, I have to say on the record that I am so indebted to your work and to Carly's work, especially over the last few years, but also for literally a decade before that. I can't think of better peers to go through all of this insane new project with and to just publish alongside you and to collaborate has been an absolute pleasure and an honor over the last few years. So thank you for joining me on the podcast today.
1: And where else would you have slept for three hours in 2012 (laughs) before taking the Chinatown bus? Thank you for
0: putting me up for three hours in Boston 10 years ago before I had to walk to the Chinatown bus. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, but likewise, Josh, and uh, a shout out to your entire community because I can't wait for the new book. Very glad to be connected and be a guest here. And I can't wait. I
0: can't wait to read the new book. And we will probably have something from New Models in there as well. So stay tuned for that. Great. Cool. Thank you, Julian. Thank you, Josh. More again soon. Thanks for listening. This is an independent show. If you like this content, you can help to show your support by subscribing and leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can support the show on Patreon, Substack, or channel. Find me on socials at Joshua Citarella on Instagram or Twitter. This is a listener-supported show. I don't do any advertising, so your support is really what keeps this project going. Thanks for listening. See you again soon.